This is Doug Cooper, author of Outside In and the Investment Club from Rare Bird Books. Today, I'm joined by Emmanuel Bergman, author of The Trick from Atria Books. Welcome, Emmanuel. Hi, thank you, Doug. Welcome. Um, thank you for having me on your on your program. Well, I just have I finished the trick this week, and I'm really excited to talk to you because, and just reading through the the reviews, and you know, obviously, one word that keeps popping up is the word magical, and it's definite definitely magical. But another word that, as I'm reading it and going through, just the word sweeping came to mind because it's just you make these broad beautiful broad strokes and just from setting from you know across continents and and lives and time zones and and everything that that went into it it's just such such a nice such a nice journey and as as i was reading it you know and i saw that you are from uh Saarbrücken. i am indeed uh, thank you first of all for your for your kind words, I'm 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 really happy that you liked it. Uh, thank you so much. So, did, you know, one of the things in my writing as well, I, I do a lot with setting. Almost that setting is another character, and you really brought these settings to life. And because they're such diverse settings, um, you know, do you go to all the places? How do you research the settings that you bring into the book? I go to all the places that I write about. Um, in the case of the trick specifically, I had been to these places without the idea necessarily of writing about them. I was just, um, these were places I had, I had spent time in Prague and uh, several of the, all of the cities, all of the places mentioned in the book are, are places that are emotionally relevant to me or places where I had spent some time. And, and I felt that they weren't adequately represented in literature. So I thought, why not pay homage or tribute to the places that are meaningful to me? Having done that, I've come to realize how important the sense of place is. And, and now I, I don't think I would ever want to write a serious story uh, set in a place that I haven't personally felt and visited. So when you're looking at, you know, a place, do you, do you feel you choose it or that it chooses you? It differs. Um, you know, I've lived in Berlin when I was younger, and um, and I really hated the city. I really hated Berlin, and I never thought I would ever set a story in Berlin. But then, as I as I grew as I grew up, my my feelings about certain places, such as Berlin, changed, and and they became more emotionally relevant for me. So, in a way, some of these places have chosen me. Prague definitely has chosen me. I had no intention of I had no intention of writing something that is set in Prague until I went there and I was sort of overwhelmed by the history of Judaism of the city and and the history of the dark history of communism in that city and and it really I found it really enchanting is the wrong word but I found it inspiring certainly in, in, on some level. But then for other projects I found um, you know, I had an idea. I had an idea for a character. I had an idea for a character's backstory, and so I went to the place and see what I could feel, what I could find there, and and that can also work. I hope. Uh, yeah, you you know, you did su such a good job. You know, and I lived five years in Oslo, Norway, and so and also you know spent uh, uh, traveled in Germany quite quite frequently and through Europe. So 
I thought you did such a good job of, of, of capturing those and, and really just also, I think a, a, a value when uh, authors use setting is the reader might have a similar connection or even a different one, but that setting evokes memories and, and brings that stuff back alive for the reader, maybe in, in a different um, means than, than intended. So re really good job there. And also you just mentioned on the characters and the character names I was really enjoyed as well. And in my, in my writing, I really put thought in, into the character names and I started researching some of the names that you used. And I just wondered, what's your process for coming up with character names? It differs really from person to person or from character to character. Let's go through the list. So the main character um, or one of my two main characters is a man named uh, Marsha Goldenhirsch. And um, he is a, um, a young man in, in Prague, uh, born in Prague after the end of World War One, who runs away from home and joins a circus and becomes a magician. And so I wanted a magician's name. And I used to have a, a friend in Los Angeles We've lost touch over recent years. His name is Andrew Goldenhirsch, and I always thought that if I ever wrote about magic, Andrew is a fantastic, mind-blowingly brilliant stage magician, and I, I always thought that if I ever wrote something about magic, I would have to call a magician Goldenhirsch, and I thought it was just a, a lovely name. His first name, Moshe, is, is obviously inspired by Moses, by the prophet. I wanted some biblical alliteration there. Other characters, like the other protagonist, Max Cohn, a 10 or 11-year-old boy who's trying in contemporary Los Angeles, who is trying to find a love spell, love magic, to, to uh, prevent his parents' divorce or stop his parents from leaving him. Uh, Max Cohn just came to me as a fully-fledged human being. Uh, the name, the person, he was immediately there. I didn't have to dig into researching names or meanings. It was just he was he was there in fact my publisher at some point had asked me to change the name um because they already had a character named max Cohn in a different book that was coming out at a similar time and that night i i dreamed my character appeared to me in a dream which they often do by the way and and he said to me don't don't take my name away from me so once you have a character's name once you found it, you know you found it, and that then becomes that person's identity. Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful story. And you mentioned the eternal love trick that is a big part of the book. And, and Max finds an album that has the has the great Sabatini's uh, work, and but there's a scratch on it, so he seeks him out. And one of the things he wants is eternal love trick, as as you said. So, um, and I know that you researched and you spent time with magicians. Is this eternal love trick an actual trick, or is it just something that you developed uh, for use in the book? So the spell of eternal love is, is of course, it's the crux of the book. You have uh, this little boy; his family is about to to explode, to break up, he is completely heartbroken and he is desperately looking for for help. He's looking for a miracle and he believes the only thing that can help him is, is magic, specifically this magic spell, the spell of eternal love that was devised by a, a grumpy old stage magician called the great Sabatini 
who we know is also, you know, Marsha Goldenhirsch, whose life story we also learn about in this book. And every trick in this book, every piece of magic is real, is, um, is something that magicians have performed. So everything was taken from the annals, if that's the right pronunciation, from the annals of magic, um, except the, the spell of eternal love. This was something that I needed as a dramatic device, and there is no such spell. And in the first draft of the book, which I'd written about 10 years ago, um, the, I, I kind of cheated, I cheated my way around having to explain the spell. I, I basically, you know, I cheated. The, the spell was never really explained in, in any great detail. Um, but then years later, when to my complete shock and surprise, the book was suddenly uh, published, and suddenly the publisher was interested and wanted to actually create a, a, a real book. Um, that means I had to do some revisions and some rewriting. And, and suddenly it became clear that I could no longer cheat, that I needed to explain what the, the spell, the spell of eternal love really is. And to that end, um, my publisher put me in touch with um, a magician who is who works as an advisor, as a freelance advisor for that kind of project. And together with him, we devised a logic and a narrative and, and a real plausible realism for this spell. It's never been performed, but it could. You mm -hmm. could put this spell on stage and it would, I guarantee you, it would work. And... So together with this magician, we we created a spell for the purpose of the story, and then when I when I wrote the chapter, because I was so enamored by how the spell worked, and I thought it would be really interesting to show the scene from the point of view of the magician, because uh, there, there's a line in the in the chapter where it says no one feels disenchantment or disillusionment more acutely than an illusionist, because he's the one who sees behind the curtain. And so I was. I wrote this chapter from the point of view of Zabatini, who knows how the spell works. That means I'm explaining the spell. And and I, I you know, I, I describe how the audience is enchanted and and mesmerized by the spell, but how he, Zabatini himself, feels disgust with them that they're so foolish that that they would fall for this trick. And so of course I am revealing this trick, and then. I submitted this chapter to um, Dr. Behrens, Oliver Behrens, the magician in Germany who advised me and who created this trick with me. And um, and I was in Germany at the time, and I got a call on my on my cell phone in the middle of the city, and he is it's it's the magician, and and I felt the wrath of the magician. He was really furious. He was really mad at me. He said he threatened me with dire consequences if I revealed the spell. He says this, this is not something that he can be part of. This is not what we had agreed upon. Under no circumstances can I reveal how this magic, how this love spell actually works. And um, and I I took his complaint seriously and, and I told him, let me rewrite the scene without revealing the spell. And if and I'm going to choose which version works better. And if I feel I have to reveal it, then so be it. Then our friendship is over and I have to reveal the spell. And so I rewrote the scene and went up to the edge of explaining it. I kept dropping hints. So anyone who reads this chapter, like in a 
Agatha Christie mystery should be able to piece it together and to figure out how the spell works. And uh, and I loved it. I loved how it worked very quickly. I loved how it worked. And then I often uh, at book readings, um, I sometimes read this chapter and the spell and um, once in a while magicians are in the audience and I've always put out this challenge that if any magician can figure out how the spell works, they're free to use it in their stage show. But so far, nobody has solved it. Well, I'm going to have to go back and read it because I was so swept up in kind of the action that I didn't pick up on how it was done. I was I was an audience member, but I I loved also how you did interject uh, Zabatini's thoughts and, as you said, his his disgust and how people uh, inter- interrupted him. The grandmother interrupted him or. Um, Harry Cohn, you know, how he picked the second card. And, you know, so he interjected his thoughts. So it really created a nice rhythm, too, that I think took you in and out uh, of things. But I was just so focused on what was happening that I'm going to have to go back to see if I can I can figure figure out, uh, you know, how, how it was done. Now that you say there's more there's more clues there. You also Sorry. touched on something there that I, I wanted and it's it's the cynicism of of Zabatini and the one of the quotes that that's in the book and I, I think there's there's so many uh, great turns of phrases and, and quotes in here I wanted to ask about a few of them. one of them this was the problem with magic it made you lose all respect for people they were so easy to manipulate well this is like you said, it's Zabatini's quote-unquote cynicism. I, I don't think of Zabatini as a cynic, really. He's just somebody who has been, he suffered a great deal. The story is told, as you know, in a, there's two storylines. It's a flashback structure. We always see what's happening with Max and his parents and the divorce in present day, and we keep flashing back to the life of Zabatini, a.k.a. Marsha Goldenhirsch, during the, during the Nazi era in, in World War II Germany. And um, and so this Zabatini is a man who who has lost a lot and who's betrayed somebody he really loves. He's 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 disappointed in life. He's bitter. I don't think he's cynical. That applies to me um, a cold-heartedness, a calculatedness that I don't think he he really has. He I think he's just a disappointed man who's put up protective barriers around himself. Um, but. You know, I think there's I think there's a certain truth to his observation. Now, I am not a magician. I know many magicians, and and they're really despicable people by and large. Um, and and so I I can only assume that if you're in that profession, if you are a magician or a member of the clergy, um, and you hold the keys to this to this secret knowledge that doesn't actually exist um, I, I assume that it must give you a little bit of a cynical worldview yeah you know, I think you know I'm paraphrasing here but I think one of the remarks you made is the problem with magicians is they don't believe in magic or something something yeah. to that effect well they don't because they they are the one magic is wonderful for us the audience right? we are the ones being fooled we are the ones experiencing this moment of awe, this moment of transcendence, when something completely impossible happens right in front of our eyes, violating 
every law of physics that we that we've come to accept. That is a fantastic moment of, of touching something almost divine. And meanwhile, the magician knows how incredibly mundane and silly the illusion really is. And and so I don't I don't I don't think that I mean a magician can't believe in magic. A magician has to believe in practice and craftsmanship and training. Yeah, and I started thinking about that in relation to, you know, immediately I started thinking about that in relation to other art, you know, and like writing, you know, and, you know, writers obviously believe in in writing and the power and, and painters and, you know, and, and so forth. And then I started thinking, ah, is that something unique about magicians? I mean, what would you say? Do you think that's something really unique about magicians i couldn't really think of another you know another profession or another art or something like that 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 would apply to as well well the belief in magic is the belief in something supernatural and and as an audience member when something inexplicable happens in front of your eyes it's not that you discard your your previous knowledge it's that there is a brief moment when your worldview is completely shaken. There's a brief moment where the supernatural seems all too real. Uh, that's what I mean with belief in magic. And and the magician who knows how it's done cannot believe in the supernatural in, mm. that, in, the, in the same way because, you know, he's the one doing it. He's the one pulling the strings. He is the manipulator. Or she. There's female magicians too. Um, I've performed with one, in fact. Um but I think there is a strong correlation between stage magic and writing. And in fact, to me, a lot of what I'm saying about magic in this book is, in fact, uh, meant to be symbolic for the act of writing. And I've often found when I'm working on a text, a translation, an article or what have you, sometimes it just feels like I am going through the motion and creakily just putting together some syntax, some words, some sentence structure. I submit the article, and I think nobody could possibly like this. And um, and at times, I'm I'm shocked when when an editor does in fact like it. And and then I feel, you know, when, when somebody tells me this was a wonderful article, and I thought, well, it's this is really I I can see the strings behind it. I can see the mm -hmm. hard work behind it. I'm not fooled by this, but you are. And likewise, sometimes I feel I'm writing something completely wonderful, only to be told that it's actually not. So it's uh, it's very mysterious how how as a creator you feel about your own work and how readers or or audiences respond. And with a stage magician, they're always performing it live. They get immediate feedback from an audience. And I've been with this book. I've been on several book tours and given several, actually really a lot of book reading so far, 70, I think. And uh, and that was an invaluable experience to read in front of a live audience and to see how people react emotionally in real time. What works and what doesn't work was an incredible experience that you don't normally get when you are creating in your own mind inside your own head and you really can't know how the world will respond. The analogy I always use with people is when you're writing in, in the writing process, you're like a mu musician playing to an empty room yes, every day. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yes, you know, exactly you just, right. You if don't you're lucky, that. there's a cat. Right. Yeah. 
and I, I've I've had uh, I have one that's 18 years old, so she stood by me through through it all. Um, you hit on uh, the connection between magic and storytelling, so I want to share another another quote with listeners, and it's he learned that magic was nothing more than a form of storytelling. Each trick was a drama. In the first act, the magician set up an expectation, which he simultaneously fulfilled and subverted in act three. Masha realized that the real trick happened inside the audience's mind. Well, this is something that I have been told by many magicians and that I have read in magic books. To understand magic, sage magic, you have to understand that the trick is actually not that relevant. What's important is all the drama around it. It's it's the storytelling. If you make an object disappear, if you put um, a hat on a table, or if you, if you put your 18-year-old cat on a table and you manage to make your cat disappear, all right, that's fine. But what makes it special, what makes it, makes it exciting, is that the disappearance of the cat becomes part of a narrative, becomes part of a story that you tell when when you start to say i have a magic cat yeah, if, you, if you say nothing and the cat just disappears or if you say hey i have a trick for you I can make my cat disappear and the cat disappears it's no great mystery but if you say this cat has been with me for 18 years i didn't find him or her as a kitten it just one day it appeared out of thin air and sometimes she disappears again and goes into another dimension she'll do it now look and you know, you create a story to put the visual moment of the visual moment of impossibility into some kind of narrative context, uh, and and that's really the crux of it. It's it's the crux of religion. It's the crux of stage magic, and I think it's the crux of of not only of writing, but it is how we experience the world as human beings. If we slip. On, if we slip on, on the sidewalk once, it's a coincidence. But if we slip twice, there must be a pattern. There must mm -hmm. be a story. And our mind starts to create a narrative. And I think, you know, with writing, you know, as you said, when the words on the page flow into the reader and they start to take on not only the meaning intended, but then the, the reader extends those. And people will come to me with things that I never intended, but I know also that that was really resonated with them, that they're able to start, as you described, you know, that the narrative is there, but then that's actually happening in their mind. Yeah. Or on, on the other hand, if you write something that you think is completely innocuous and then, and then people are suddenly terribly upset about it and you realize that you've written something that you didn't think twice about and it's horribly offensive to <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> that has happened quite a lot with this book so you also you know take on um some difficult topics you know with the holocaust and and everything and and another quote that um i thought really tied tied together with this idea of illusion in art and it was that was his true art living in the shadow of the slaughterhouse and pretending not to notice the slaughter. Well, this is something that has always bothered and, and fascinated me. Um, I, 
as as you pointed out, I was born in Saarbrücken, a small town, a small German town on the French border. So I was born and raised in Germany until my I lived there until I was about 20 before I came to the United States, and uh, and I'm Jewish, or at least part Jewish. My my father is Jewish, so half of my family is Jewish, and therefore World War Two and the Shoah have a particular resonance with me because my grandmother is a, a or was she's dead now. She was a Holocaust survivor. Or not survivor, really, because at the end of her life, she decided to commit suicide. So I think that the Nazis finally won in the end. At least they got her. And growing up with that, growing up, you know, my father was born in a displaced persons camp in 1945 before the war was even over. So, and, and the majority of my family has been wiped out, has been killed in the camps. And so I grew up with, I grew up in a, in a graveyard. I grew up with these shadows all around me and with the stories that my grandmother told me uh, and endless stories I had to listen to about relatives that were incredibly meaningful to her. But to me, these were just names, the names of people that I've never met, people who don't even have graves, people that literally were turned to ash. I don't know who these people are. They have no relevance to me. But to my grandmother, it was her entire youth, her entire childhood that had simply been burnt, that had collapsed. And so growing up in Germany, you see the physical traces of the of the Holocaust all around you. My uncle used to live in a part of town where just a five minute walk away is the train station where all the Berlin Jews were deported to Auschwitz. And you can see the train tracks where this happened. So the it's it's not abstract. It's very real. You can you can you can see the infrastructure of this monstrous crime growing up. On my way to school, I always came by a plaque that said, "There used to be a synagogue here, but we burned it down." And one time, as a school trip, this is something as a, probably some sort of rite of passage for every German child, uh, we did a field trip to a nearby concentration camp because, of course, our teachers wanted to. Um, teach us about the horrors and the lessons of the Holocaust. So we went to visit one of these death camps and it was a really traumatic experience for me. I decided never to go back. But what struck me, one of the things that struck me the most is there was only one road that led to this extermination camp, which was in Alsace. I forget the name of it right now, but it's a, it's a smaller, smaller death camp in Alsace, Lothringia. And, um, and you drove past these pastoral villages to get to this place of execution. And I kept thinking the people living in these villages, they must have known there's only one road. Truckloads of people are constantly being bussed through and no one ever comes out. And there's crematoria with clouds coming out. You, you cannot tell me that you can't have known. And yet everyone mastered the art of pretending. In my family, there was a joke. My, my grandfather used to tell a joke saying, you know, you ask the Germans, they say, well, we didn't know about the camps. And even if we did, we, we didn't want to end up in them. Mm. Yeah. And just again, this idea, uh, you know, the disappearance and how, how deeply you are able to weave, you know, this, this idea of a illusion 
and magic and not in an entertaining sense, but in a very dark sense as well, you know, and I think one of the lines, you know, is, you know, hope is a dangerous illusion. Well, hope is a dangerous illusion. I, I read a book, I think the author's name was uh, Jean-Francois Steiner, who wrote a book about Treblinka, the death, death camp, who had a whole chapter devoted to how the Nazis perfected a system of hope, of fake hope, of getting people to collaborate, saying, you know, on the way to the gas chambers, you're given a towel. Why are you given towels? So that people think, well, it can't be too bad. Obviously, nothing bad is going to happen to us, or they wouldn't be giving us towels. It clearly must be an actual shower. So, yes, hope has been cynically used as a, a means of manipulation. And, you know, the title of the book implies singularity, right? The trick. But there are so many tricks going on. And, of course, we don't want to give away any spoilers in, in how these multitude of tricks um, come together. But it, did you ever contemplate other titles? For, for the book, or did you always know, similar to like the character, that the trick was always the working title and carried through? Yes, at first I wanted to call the book simply Magic. And uh, I just love the word magic, and it's what it's about. And I thought, oh, I'll call this book Magic. But I knew, of course, you know, in the back of my mind, I knew that there is a, a movie, I think, by, by William Goldman, the man who had written The Princess Bride. There's a movie by William Goldman called Magic. From the sixties, from the seventies, I think this movie. And I thought, well, it's been, you know, it's been such a long time. Nobody will remember. Nobody will mind. It just never felt right. It never, mm -hmm. never felt like the right title because I realized the point of the story isn't actually the magic, isn't actually the illusion. The point of it is the peak behind the curtain, the disillusionment, as well as the illusion. It is not about just the moment of transcendence and the moment of magic. It is also very much about pulling the strings and seeing how the trick works. And then I realized I'm going to go with the opposite. I'm going to call it the trick. And once I knew that, I knew it was the title. There was a time after I'd written it when it, it looked for a while like it might be published. It ended up not getting published. And so I gave up and had put it away in the drawer for a couple of years. But in those few months when it looked like maybe it'll be published, somebody had suggested to change the title and to make it more commercial. And so we had a different title when we sent this manuscript out and I never warmed up to it. It never was right to me. And then when many years later it finally was accepted, it finally was published, my publisher asked me, so really, what do you want to call it? And I said, no, the trick. That, that's, that is the identity of this story, the trick. And when you, when you're writing and I know you do, you do translating in, in addition to your writing and uh, when you write your first draft now, are you writing in English or are you writing in German? You know, you're touching on a difficult question. The first draft of the trick I wrote in English, I, just because it's, it's a very succinct language. It's to the point it lends itself to irony and sarcasm and, uh, and I, I wrote the first draft fairly quickly in about six weeks. Uh, it was also much shorter than, and, um, and later when it was published, I expanded the manuscript by, by 60 pages or so. But I'd written the first draft in English. And I used to think, and to some degree I still do, that it's useful to write in the language 
of the characters, the language that the characters think and talk in. Um, but I don't, I no longer think that's entirely true because I wrote the entire book in English, even the sections that are set in the Czech Republic and in Germany. And that worked fine as well. And then I, once it was published, I had to rewrite the entire book in German the second time. I wrote the second draft in German. And, and I felt, I, I felt I was discovering different nuances and, and different depths to the story, writing it, rewriting it in German. And so I began to feel that the true voice, the true identity of this book is actually in German. And now I've come to believe that like a character or like a person who has a native language, a book has a native language and, you know, I have to find what it is. I have to find what that language is. Sometimes it's not immediately apparent. And also I'm limited by the fact that I only speak two languages fluent enough to write in them. So um, I'm not going to be doing anything in Mandarin anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, you touched on the sarcasm and, you know, I think there's a lot of different humorous, uh, humorous points. And as I said, you know, living in, in, in Oslo and had done a lot of international travel and work and, you know, it's difficult to be funny in, in different languages because humor is, is, you know, very contextual and, and, and culture based and so forth. And there's just one spot that I don't know why I thought this was funny. And I think it's, they were leaving the hospital and, you know, just coming out of kind of a heavy, heavy moment. And, and then they went to Baja fresh and he had a, had a cheese quesadilla. And I don't know. I, I don't know if that was intentional, but I just, for some reason, I just, the, the contrast in that just, I kind of laughed. I, I laughed about that. Was it, was there any, any meaning behind that? Were you, were you trying to contrast or, or what made you select that? Well, I really like the cheese quesadillas at Baja Fresh. <laughs> I love it. That's great. And if I had just been through a traumatic, difficult experience in a hospital and I needed some comfort food, that's probably where I'd go. Cheese quesadilla is is your choice. It's my choice, absolutely. <laughs> I love cheese in general. I can't get enough cheese in my life. Well, thanks. This has been great catching up with you and, and hearing you. more about the trick. Any last words you'd like to share with us? Well, all I can say is thank you very much for your interest and your enthusiasm. And thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. And I hope that people will discover this book. I hope that people will like this book and that they will find the story as as enchanting as, as I did, which is why I wrote it. It was something that needed to come out, and I'm hoping that it will find a home in the hearts of the one other reader. And I really hope people do, too, because it is enchanting, as I used the word earlier, sweeping and it is indeed magical. I'm Doug Cooper, author of Outside In and the Investment Club from Rare Bird Books. And we've been in conversation with Emmanuel Bergman about his book, The Trick.